All right, let us begin. Um, as always, if you come late, we have extra here. At the end of the teaching, you can grab a to-go container and take it with you. And again, welcome. If this is your first time, we do this every week. This is the first one of our new year, 2019. We've been going since forever. Um, but we, we, it's completely free. We ask that you just come and leave a tip, and the tip goes to the ladies in the back that fix the food for us as a thank you to them. Uh, so welcome. I hope you had a great holiday. Um, holidays are great for some people and they're miserable for other people and that's okay. <laughs> We're just glad you're back and the year has started. Um, <clears throat> my cough is slowly subsiding that I've had for about a month so hopefully um, I'll be able to speak clearly on what we're going to be looking at which is today we're starting a whole new epic in human history, right? We've spent six years in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've, we've journeyed through those books together. Moses is dead. That's how Joshua 1 begins. Moses is dead. The entire era of the patriarchs, the exodus, and the wilderness is over. And now we're transitioning into this year into the book of Joshua, the next part. Joshua, in the Greek uh, division of the Bible, when it was translated into Greek, they divided Joshua as the first of the historical books. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, those kind of books. They're the history books. They tell the history of Israel after they got into the land that became known as the land of Israel. In the Hebrew breakdown of the books, Joshua is the first of the prophets. He's the, the former prophets. So Joshua, um, Samuel, <clears throat> Elijah, these are all the, the, the former prophets. And then the later prophets are the ones that we know of as the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So either way, regardless of whether you're following the Hebrew delineation of the Bible books or the Greek delineation of the Bible books, it's the same material and it's the same concept, which is this is a transition book. Joshua's transitioning out of Torah into what does it mean to live out Torah now. You know, Torah, Torah means teaching. It comes from the word yara, which means to point. Because Torah was to point the way that people should live and it was to point the people to God. So we've been in Torah for five years, and now we're going to see what the implications of keeping that Torah in the land are going to be like the first part of this year. We'll probably get through Joshua, hopefully by around the summer, we'll be done with the book. It's a shorter book. It's only 24 chapters, I think, and some of those chapters are lists, and so we will be able to go through those at a quicker pace. But... To, to get you oriented to the book, and those of uh, people that are following along on the podcast and the YouTube channel, is we want to, again, set the scene because the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do with the book of Joshua is just pick it up and start reading it with no understanding of the context. It's, it's, the, it's better for you not to read the book at all than to read it without an understanding of what came before. That's just straight up truth. Yeah, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And yes, but all Scripture in context. And if you take Joshua out of its historical context and its specific um, time period in history, then you end up doing a lot of uh, what I call theological malpractice. And you start in, 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 you enlisting Joshua on your side of whatever crusade you happen to want to launch. And people have done it all throughout history, and it's, it's, it's an abuse of the book. Joshua is a challenging book. Joshua is not on a lot of greeting cards. You don't see it on a lot of birthday well wishes. It's not a precious moments book. Um, Joshua is a very dark book at times. It's a very violent book. 
It's a seemingly sinful book to a lot of people. And there's things that happen in Joshua that make the reader go, whoa, wait a minute, how is this kosher? Because it seems to fly in the face of a lot of what we've just spent the last five years learning about. So Joshua is a challenging book, and we're going to, like we do every week at this Bible study, we're going to rush headlong into it. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to skip any chapters that are boring or weird or dull or gross. Uh, but we're going to do it in its context. And that context is the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made a covenant. Now, you guys won't be able to see this in the back, but this is a teaching graphic that I used to show, that, and the people on the camera can see it. But God, in Genesis, God created the nations. And then Genesis tells the story of how God and the nations became separate because of sinfulness and rebellion. And so God then said, I'm going to choose, a, I'm going to, I'm going to do, hatch a rescue plan to redeem the world, and I'm going to do it through the seed of the woman. I'm going to do it through, this is Genesis 3. I am going, it's going to come through a human being that the rescue of the world will take place. And that human being, Genesis chapter 3, will one day crush the head of the serpent the one who's ultimately responsible for leading humanity astray, will be destroyed by a human. The seed of the woman. And that word seed, we've talked about for years. Seed is translated as offspring, descendant. Sometimes it's a literal seed. Sometimes it's the word for semen and sexual contents. It's the word that means what comes forth from and what brings new life. And so the seed of the woman, singular seed, it's a collective singular word like our word sheep or fish, seed of the woman will be the means by which the world is saved. So then Genesis moves along, chapter 3 goes on, then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God says, now I'm going to, in this ongoing means of rescuing, reaching the nations, I'm going to call a specific seed of the woman. And his name is Abram. And he's a pagan Babylonian uh, living outside of the promised land, which doesn't even exist at this point. And God calls this guy Abram. We saw that's the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12. Everything up to Genesis 12 is the preface. Remember, think of Lord of the Rings and the whole voiceover at the beginning, and then you get the title sequence about 12 minutes into it. Well, that's what Genesis 1-11 through is. Genesis 12 then starts the Bible story. And that's the story of Abram, exalted father, Avram. And he gets a name change through his relationship with God to Avraham, father of many. Because God says, you're going to be the father of many nations, and you're going to be the means by which I bring the nations back to me. And so Genesis 12 culminates with that promise in the first few verses, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So then it moves along, Genesis 15 comes along and God says, now here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through your biological offspring. The offspring of you and your wife Sarai. And the kicker is you're both in your 90s now, so there's no way that this can be a natural thing. And God does it miraculously, and that child that's born is Isaac. And God says, and it's through your offspring Isaac that this blessing plan is going to carry forward. And then Isaac's son, or Isaac grows older, same thing. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God says, yeah, the older one, Esau, I'm going to take care of him. I don't hate Esau. Uh, I'm going to take care of him. But the younger one is who the blessing is going to flow through. This plan, this chosenness, chosen to rescue the world, chosen to bring forth God's blessing. That's what chosen means. Not favored more than others, but given a purpose that is specific and unique. And so, God chooses sovereignly 
the second son, Jacob. And he has an encounter later in the book of Genesis where he gets his name changed from heel grabber, sneaky taker, grabs what doesn't belong to him. That's what Yaakov means, Jacob. So if you name your kid Jacob, you're not giving him a great name. Just heads up. Um, And James is the English version of Jacob, so I'm speaking to myself here. But rather, he changes his name to Yisrael, struggles with God strives with God. And, he's, and, and it's through this identification, uh, this key moment, go back to the Genesis passage on the video or the podcast if you want to see that, but his entire identity changes. And he becomes for the first time Israel. His 12 sons become the heads of what would become the tribes of Israel. And the book of Genesis ends with all that family, 70 or 72 of them, going down to Egypt because of a famine, going down as political or as uh, ecological or economical refugees, down into Egypt and remaining in Egypt. And then between the page of Genesis and Exodus, there's 400 years of nothing. Complete silence. And then you turn the page to Exodus and now... Israel has become a massive amount of people in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Some people say millions. And we talked about the problem with the numbers and calculating the population back during that series. But the point is, it's a lot. It's numerous. It's way more than 70 people. To the point that the Pharaoh of Egypt decides, I'm going to enslave and I'm going to do population control through ethnic cleansing. And so there's a genocidal plot against all of the male Hebrew children and God miraculously calls uh, one of them, and his name is Moses, and he says, now, you're going to be the one who leads my people out of this, back to the land that I promised your ancestor, Abram, and you're going to be the people Israel in the land. And that's the promise God made back in Genesis 15. So Israel, because of Exodus, Moses leads the people out, and we've spent the last few years seeing that, um, leads them into the desert, They meet God face-to-face on God's mountain, Mount Sinai. They go up, they experience Him, they make the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And the covenant then becomes, hey, this is the formal, legal, national charter by which you as a people will live in a specific land. And if you do that and do what I'm commanding you in this covenant, then I will bless you and I will make sure that you are the means by which the nations come to knowledge of me. I will bless you. You'll be the highest. I'll exalt you. The nations will come streaming. They'll be bringing their gifts. They'll be worshiping me. It'll be amazing. If you keep my covenant. And the first generation breaks the covenant. While the covenant's being written, after they've agreed, okay, we'll keep it, then as the stipulations are being given, they're down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping uh, idols, breaking the very first commandment. (coughs) So, that generation, God said, He puts up with it for a few, about a year, and He said, That's it, you're done. You're done. After your rebellion, when they decide to rebel against this entire plan to the point of no return, God says, You're done. You as a people are going to die in the desert, and your children, the next generation, will pick up where we left off, and they will be the inheritors of this promise. So the people of Israel are secure, they remain, they cannot be destroyed, they cannot be overrun, they cannot be wiped out. But every individual Israelite has to decide whether he's going to be part of that story or going to reject it and go into destruction. And so that's the choice that God gives His people under this covenant. So the next generation then is the generation that we're going to read about in Joshua. They're the generation that were, they were assembled as little children. Some of them weren't even born yet. They were born in that 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. But they've now grown up 
and they're ready to go into the land and do what originally should have been done under Moses, which is go into the land and take the land. Okay? So now, why the land and why the warfare? That's the question. This is what people frequently miss when they start to study Joshua. All the way back in Genesis 15, all the way back in Genesis 15, when God first made the promise to Abram, I'm going to give your offspring this land in 400 years. It's going to be long after you're dead. They're going to come in and they're going to possess this land that you're standing on as an immigrant alien sojourner right now. That's the promise. Why couldn't God just give them the land then? God makes a key statement in Genesis 15. He says, I'll bring them back in that generation for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That phrase is Genesis chapter 15. You can go look this up later. You can't read Joshua without Genesis 15 in the background. That's the danger. What God's saying is by the time your people, your family, has become a great nation and is ready to inherit this land, that will just so happen to be the time, because I'm God and I can arrange coincidences, that will just so happen to be the time when the current residents of this land, for the most part, not every single one of them, there are always exceptions, and we're going to meet some of those exceptions as we go through the book of Joshua. But for the most part, the inhabitants of this land, the specific peoples of Canaan, will have become so depraved and so corrupt and so violent and so evil and so dead set against me as God that it will be time for them to experience judgment and you're going to be that judgment. That's the plan. The kicker is God tells Israel, wow, that's the plan. Hey, and guess what? When you get in the land, if you go the way of the Canaanites, and if you do the things the Canaanites did, and if you bow down to the gods the Canaanites worshipped, if you break the covenant, you will become a Canaanite. And I will treat you as the Canaanites. And another people from far away will come in and drive you out of the land. And he promises that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 27-28, where we looked at just last year. So the people know in advance they're going into the land, They're going in the land as God's army. Remember, they left Egypt as what? A mixed multitude of slaves. Mostly Hebrew, but some Egyptian, some uh, Kenizzites like Caleb, not an Israelite. Um, Just a mixed group of people that came out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Longer than we've been around as a country. And then God takes them into the desert and He forms them into an army And it's an army centered not around a human general or a human king, but around his presence in their midst. So the the, the symbol of that, remember, Israel was camped around Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai had borders that nobody, you know, people could get only a certain distance to before God said, back off. This is holy ground and you're profane, uh, you know, stand where you are. But then a few people who were ritually clean, who God chose and gave uh, methods of, of, purification could come a little closer up the mountain and then of those the leaders could come up a little higher and then of those Moses himself who was the high priestly presence and then eventually that would go to Aaron could go to the very top and be with God face to face in the center of it all so then what God does is he takes that concentric structure of holiness with him residing at Mount Sinai and he smashes it down And it becomes the tabernacle. It's like the tabernacle is take Mount Sinai and just collapse it down and you get these concentric rings of holiness. So you have an outer court. And that's the 
boundary that the people can't come through. The Levites are camped around that to keep the people from getting too close to God on their own terms. And then you have the inner court, and then that's where the sacrifices happen, and the, and the purification takes place. And then you have the holy place, and that's where only the certain priests can go to perform rituals in God's presence. And then you have the holy of holies right in the middle, and that's the mountaintop of Sinai. Only the high priest can go in there only once a year. And what's in there? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. It has two angels that its wings are facing each other. If you saw Indiana Jones, yeah, that's a good representation, the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't melt faces that we know of, but it's like that. And the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim, God's throne, God dwells above them. He is enthroned above the heavenly beings, meaning He is enthroned over all creation. So all the symbolism, and those of you that did the, the Levitic, Exodus and Leviticus study with us, we looked at all of that symbolism. But that is, is So the Ark of the Covenant... It's not just a magical box. We know it's not a magical box because later it gets captured by the Philistines and it gets put in a guy's house. And that guy actually gets blessed, but then sometimes people that touch it die, but then other times they don't. It's just, it's not a magical box. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbolic theological presence of God in the midst of His covenant people. And if His covenant people are living, if they are keeping the covenant, if they are living faithfully under Torah, then that ark is God's presence in their midst guaranteeing victory in any conflict that they face. That's the promise God made. Why? Because He's the great suzerain. Remember Deuteronomy, a whole year we've looked at this. He is the great suzerain king. Israel is His faithful vassal. If you pledge yourself to a suzerain, to a king as His, as his serving, loyal serving vassal, that king is covenant-bound to protect you from bigger, stronger enemies that would try to hurt you. That's what a suzerain-vassal relationship is. And God is Israel's suzerain. Israel is his vassal. The only question that the book of Joshua raises is, will they be faithful vassals or will they be unfaithful vassals? And so, all of this is swirling in the background of when reading Joshua. And what we're seeing is God at a specific point in history culminating the promises He's made to a specific line within the seed of the woman, humanity, a specific family within that, Abram, his seed, his offspring, <clears throat> bringing them as a nation into the specific land where He first made His appearance or made His promise to Abram so that then in that land, living as faithful covenant people, all of the nations of the world will be drawn to or will see Israel and their relationship with God and be drawn to that same God. We want to know, who is this God who's sovereign over the heavens and the earth? Remember, Israel's surrounded by polytheists. And deities in polytheism are tribal and territorial. So the God of Midianites is pretty strong in Midian. He's useless in Assyria. That's what made these empires that arose so great is because they would conquer other nations and then say, it's because our gods are better than your gods that we're able to conquer you. So start worshiping our gods after we've conquered you. That's how it worked. And then another nation with bigger, stronger gods would rise up and destroy. And then they'd say, no, our gods are stronger. Our gods laugh at your gods. And, uh, you know, it's <clears throat> War in the earthly realm was seen as cosmic conflict being played out. And so in that context steps Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, okay, nations, do you want to see what it's really all about? Do you want to see the real deal? I'm going to take a rabble of slaves from a mixed group ethnic 
make up, mostly Hebrews, but a lot not. And I'm going to lead them, I'm going to overthrow the most powerful nation that has ever existed up until this point in history, Egypt. And I'm going to do it without any of these people raising a hand. Well, I guess Moses raised his hands. But other than that, raising a weapon, I'm going to completely cripple and bring to its knees this supposed God-King Pharaoh who claims to be divine. And I'm going to do it in order to bring out my firstborn son, Israel, my people, and to show the power that I, as the covenant God, have over all the other gods of the earth and all the other ways that humanity have multiplied seeking the divine. And then bringing them, and all of this is going to be done by God's sovereign hand. The only, and the reason it's going to be a testament is because all Israel is going to have to do is be faithful to the covenant. Live the covenant as we saw. No other gods before me. No graven images. Honor your father and mother. Not kill, not steal. If you see somebody in need, help them. Somebody's animal is even in need. Help the animal. If you build a house, put railings around it so somebody doesn't fall off and die. Be a responsible society. When you're gleaning your fields, leave the edge for the poor and the widow. Don't be, you know, super greedy. Like all of these things that all of Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy legislated, if Israel just does that, God says, I take care of the fighting. I take care of the battles. You can even tell your soldiers, hey, if you're uh, newly married, go home. You don't have to serve. Go enjoy your wife. Start a family. Be in the land. If you just built a house, you just planted a vineyard, go take care of that. That stuff's more important than you having to be in God's army. Why? Because you're not needed. God's doing the fighting. And then he caps it off. This was back in Numbers. He says, or if you're just scared. If you're just scared to fight this battle, go home. God doesn't need you to win. He is the one doing the fighting. Because Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is a warrior. And that's the image that comes from the book of Joshua. So because of that then, Joshua is going to have a lot of warring. There's going to be a lot of fighting. It is a military... Joshua, just like Deuteronomy was an ancient Near East Covenant suzerainty treaty, we saw structurally that's what it is. The genre of Joshua has much in common with ancient Near East um, battle accounts and specifically land grants. When a king would win a battle against another king, he would grant certain territories to his people. And it it was a land grant document. And Joshua, especially the later chapters that we're going to get to that are going to really, really test your ability to stay focused, um, those are a land-grant format. And the accounts in the battles of Joshua, it's going to use stock ancient Near East imagery and phrases to describe total victory in exalted and hyperbolic terms. So you're going to have things like, this city was completely destroyed, we left alive, nothing that breathes. And then a few chapters later, you'll hear, now the inhabitants of this city who remained, don't intermarry with them, don't do, 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 do. And it's like, well, wait a minute, which is it? Well, it's, it's both. It's a rhetorical, it's just like the example I used, because we got a lot of Panthers fans in here, all right? So, or I'll, I'll be, since I enjoyed seeing Alabama go down, because they are Satan incarnate, um, I will say, I'll, sorry any Bama fans, um, no, Clemson destroyed Alabama in the national championship. Clemson destroyed Alabama. Now, does that mean that the city of Clemson destroyed the state of Alabama? No, no. Does it mean anybody actually got destroyed? No. What does it mean? It means they beat them really bad in football. I know that. You know that. We all share the same language and culture. We know that. 
If you like pro football, the Panthers, when they win a game, oh, the Panthers routed the Buccaneers, okay? Routed, that's a battle term, that's a military. Nobody got routed. Nobody got, you know, it was a football game. We're describing it, but we use hyperbolic, exaggerated imagery for rhetorical effect. And if somebody were to go, no, 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 actually you're stupid and you don't know your history, the Panthers didn't really destroy anybody, they didn't kill anybody, the quarterback didn't get you know, beat down, or any of these terms you use, you would look at them and go, well, you clearly don't understand sports writing because this is how we speak of these events. Same thing with Joshua. When, when higher critics come in and go, oh, this is unhistorical material because Joshua clearly didn't destroy everyone in, who lives in this city because we have evidence that people remain... Well, you're missing how it's described. It's intentionally using hyperbole. It's intentionally using exaggerated language. Not to mislead, not because it's unhistorical, not because it's not trustworthy, but because it's a human document written in human language between humans describing events that happen among humans. That's the method by which God speaks the book of Joshua. So when you're reading that, you have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, you're going to do what a number of critics have done. You go, Joshua is this awful text of an ethnocentric, egocentric, arbitrary, vicious God who has no regard for human life, who you know, doesn't even spare women and children. Da, da, da. And it's like, well, well, no. We've seen from Genesis on how that's not the case. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God was going to destroy an entire area because of the wickedness. And Abraham, God appeared to Abraham solely to let Abraham barter him down and to say, hey, if there's just ten faithful people in this entire region of awful evil, I'll spare the entire region and I will hold off judging an entire corrupt civilization for the sake of ten righteous people. That's massive. That's the heart of God. So when we do come to passages where God does finally destroy or command to be destroyed certain areas or certain cities or certain people groups or their religious practices, then we as the reader who've been following along through Genesis, we realize the God of Abraham, Yahweh, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, showing chesed kindness to the thousands generations, has finally reached his limit. And so we have a choice to make at that point. We can say, well, we know better than God and there must have been innocent people and God's wrong for killing, you know, doing this judgment. Or we can go, huh, well, if God is the one who doesn't desire that anyone should perish and God's also the one who gave the command that this people group's time is up and they are going to perish, we can probably trust that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. And we don't have to explain it. We don't have to like it. We certainly don't emulate it. We just say, Lord, you're God, we're not. You're the author of all creation. And you know the heart and the mind of every single person in every single village in every single human settlement throughout all time. So we're just going to trust you on this one, even if we're a little unnerved by it. And that's a perfectly valid approach when we come to passages in the Old Testament that make us recoil. They should make us recoil. Don't be like the people that read Joshua and go, yeah, get them, kill those Canaanites. God Himself doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He says it. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33. God says, I take no pleasure in the, delight in the death of the wicked. You've got a whole book of the Bible named after a guy who wanted to see a people group burn. And God said, no, I want him to repent. And He used a fish and a worm and we get the book of Jonah. But that's the character of God. So when you're reading Joshua, which we're going to start next week, actually the text itself, um, keep in mind all of the background. Keep in mind all of the cultural milieu 
as you're reading. Otherwise, you're going to do what people have done throughout history and read the text and you're going to misread it. You're going to come away with a false idea of God or even worse, a false idea of what God wants us to do. And you have things like the Puritans uh, using Joshua passages to encourage colonial settlers to kill and destroy Indian villages. Preaching to them saying, yes, these are the new Canaanites. You're the Israelites. Go wipe out these whoever, Cherokee or whatever. You know, or you get other groups enlisting it, Joshua, as if God's on their side or as if Joshua speaks to anything other than that single generation of Israel's history where he was specifically judging these specific peoples. Not carte blanche to just God's on our side no matter what. So you've got to keep that in mind, and that's the reason I'm harping on it so much in this first session, because we're going to get into it next week. But things are going to get interesting, and they're going to be fun. So come back next week, bring a friend, tell your coworkers, uh, subscribe on YouTube, podcast, whatever, and let's keep this thing going. Have a great week, guys.